When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. As the escalating effects of climate change are felt around the world and democracy is weathering turbulence here at home, I decided to invite back an old friend of The Axe Files, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington, one of the most admirable politicians I know, a longtime leader on climate issues in Congress and his state, and an unrepentant optimist, even in stormy times, as you'll hear in this conversation. Governor, it is great to see you again. It's been a few years since we sat down here on this podcast, and I'm, I'm happy to see you again. You have not aged a day. All right, so we're going to start off lying to each other. Okay, <laughs> I can see how this thing's going to go. <laughs> Why worry about our credibility? It's been shot for years. So. You're not running for re-election. You can get away with it. <laughs> the reason that I was so eager to speak with you is that I needed a dose of optimism. I wouldn't call you a wild-eyed optimist, but you're a uh, realistic optimist about two things that I wanted to talk to you about, about two things that you are a bona fide expert on. One is climate change and the other is democracy. You've been around those issues most of your life. And the thing that reminded me to do this was I saw you in July on ABC talking about climate and you were so refreshingly blunt but uh, also optimistic that I thought, man, I, I got to get him back on this podcast. But I wake up every morning, I watch the news, and at least five minutes is devoted to some climatic disaster somewhere, uh, you know, a disaster in which climate change plays a role. And it feels like they're coming faster and faster. So tell me where you think we are in terms of the development of climate change, and tell me where you think we are. Then tell me where you think we are in terms of the answer. Well, thanks for the $64,000 question for humanity right now. And the way I would describe it is where we are is we're in a race. We're just in a race. And our opponent is moving faster. Uh, and, you know, you do feel it. The beginning of every news story starts with the climate disaster. That's the first thing. This week, it, you know, fires in Greece. Last week, it was Spokane County in my state where fires have doubled every decade for the last couple of decades because of climate change. And we just lost 300 homes. In fact, I just talked to a guy, just got off the phone with him who, who was fighting fires and he, he helped save our state hospital where hundreds could have been killed in the fires. And he went out and tried to fight the fires, had a heart attack while he was doing it. Oh my. And he just had open heart surgery. He's going to be okay. So he's like, you know, we see heroism too during this effort. Yes. Stories of, of heroic deeds come out. So we all know that the enemy is, is moving faster. The enemy's at the gate. The beast is a lot worse. And I think that's actually, in fact, we're actually having a, you might be interested in this, next week we're having a, a forum with some of the international scientific community because basically the scientists' hair is on fire because 
these things that we thought were going to be happening in 2040 are happening in 2023. And it is apparent there's a really dangerous dynamic that we're right that these things were going to happen, but unfortunately they're happening a lot faster than we would have predicted. So that's the, that's the opponent that we're racing. You use the term enemy at the gates. And it strikes me that if this were a foreign adversary, for example, and a foreign a- adversary did the damage to us that climate is doing on a regular basis, we would, as one, react as a country, and we would say, this is a national emergency, and we would apportion all our resources to repelling that enemy. But that's not the psychology of climate. You are putting your finger on something I've been thinking about for 25 years, and that's exactly right. If, if, if Putin had unleashed a weapon system on us that caused uh, 300 homes to burn down in Spokane a couple weeks ago, we would have reacted in that way, as we did on you know December 8th, 1941, uh, when Pearl Harbor was bombed. You're entirely correct. And our national uh, response has been you know, 5% what it was on December 8th, 1941. And yet the, the risk factor is frankly as greater, greater, at least in the long term, than an international conflict. And we haven't been able to personify it in that regard. And so I think the national challenge has been to awaken the threat level and get us to understand that. Now, here's the good news on this. So I want to, if we can, I just want to get to the good news, okay? Yes, no, no. I I, 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 I warned them you were an optimist, and there right. I was bridling you trying to get to the good news. Yeah, and I think it's really important to get to the good news. And I'll tell you why this is an important part of this uh, conversation we're having right now, is that um, uh, climate despair is a, is an enemy itself because despair leads to inaction and passivity and defeatism. That's a danger here. We cannot allow ourselves to to slip into uh, passivity just because we have anxious uh, feelings and, and despair. Look, and and this is good for our mental health too. Look, the the antidote to despair and anxiety is action. This is good for our mental health. We got to take action. We got to inspire people to be willing to take action against this. It's good because it's necessary for our physical survival to beat climate change, but it's good for our mental health too. And this is a mental health issue. And a lot of young people now are saying, geez, am I going to have young, am I going to have children in a world that is so damaged? So this is a mental health challenge for us too. So we got to, as rapidly as we can, get in the action-oriented part of this discussion. And there is so much good news on this. It's just overwhelming how much good news there is out there on our ability to build a clean energy economy and to imagine and then bring to fruition a non-carbon-based economy. And that's basically the name of the game. We have to demonstrate a way to build a non-carbon, non-fossil fuel-based economy. And we are doing that with such accelerated rapidity. It's just stunning what's going on. You know, we're, we're the first or second leading uh, uh, state in the uptake of electric cars. People love them. They're going crazy. We're building electric chargers all over. The job creation that's going on across the United States is stunning. Uh, under the Inflation Reduction Act, we're turning the Rust Belt, the Midwest, and the, and the Deep South even. 
into an electric uh, manufacturing base of electric cars and batteries. In my state, I can't turn over a rock without finding a new business, developing a new business model, putting people to work, not just in the Seattle high-tech quarter, but across uh, the state of Washington. And it's just so exciting when I get to go around and talk to these entrepreneurs and frequently young people who are doing amazing things. I'll give you an example. So I ran across a guy the other day. He started a company called 12. He's a, he and two of his, his colleagues at Stanford, they were chemical engineering majors. They found, a, uh, they found a, a chemical that was discovered like in the 30s, uh, and it's a catalyst. And they thought, geez, we ought to be able to do something with this catalyst. And they figured out a way to use this catalyst to make a jet fuel out of carbon dioxide and water. So they're using something we need to get out of the atmosphere, which is carbon dioxide, use this catalyst and an old system called Fischer-Trope, it was actually even were de- developed in World War II, to make perfectly clean jet fuel. And I went to the groundbreaking of that. It's in Moses Lake, Washington, a little town, 120 miles east of Seattle. And here you have this young Stanford graduate, two of his friends, they're going to be making jet fuel out of carbon dioxide, which is like, you know, the, the Rosetta Stone of trying to replace fossil fuel-based uh, uh, products in our, in our jet transportation, which is one of the more difficult things to do on this long journey. So that's the kind of thing that's exciting to me. It's happened all over my state. It's happening much faster than anybody predicted. And if I can crow just for a second, I'll tell you one little story, David, that to me is epitomizes the situation we are in. So in 2007, I wanted to convince my colleagues in Congress that we could build an electric car uh, industrial base in the United States, and that we could replace our gas prior cars with electric cars. So I brought, I got GM to bring down the prototype. At the, that time, it was called the Volt, Vias and Victory OLT, is a hybrid electric car. And I had, a, I wanted to bring it down and show my buddies in Congress that we could do this. So I got them to bring it down. They brought it up down on our, like you know, a U-Haul. They rolled it down. This was in back of the Longworth building. And before breakfast, I got about two dozen of my buddies to come out and look at this car. I wanted to show them what could happen. And we popped the hood, and there's nothing under the hood. And I asked the guy from GM, you know, where's the engine? He says, well, we haven't quite got to that so far. And all my friends said, Inslee, you are so full of it. This electric car thing is just a toy. Get out of here. You ruined our morning. You wasted our time. This is ridiculous. It's never going to be anything that a, but a Tonka truck, you know? And it didn't work out really well to convince them of that. Well, jump forward to 2023, where almost every single ad in the Super Bowl you know, this last year was for an electric car and, and people can't get them. It's just an issue of supply, how fast we can build them. To me, it's kind of a metaphor what's going on. We're building a clean energy future and, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, we should point out that one of the things that's driving this is an 84% decrease in the cost of solar power, 55% for wind power, 85% for these batteries. So the market has moved in a way that is making uh, clean energy more affordable than old energy sources. But let me ask you, I, I do want to ask you about the weirdly named Inflation Reduction Act and as a climate piece of legislation. But before we do, 
you know, you talk about the jobs and you talk about the economic activity, but one of the things that you hear from people in labor is, yeah, these they're, they're creating jobs, but they're not jobs with the same benefits. They're not jobs that are unionized. They're not jobs that will yield the same middle class life. And, and that's the resistance that you you hear from those who are in the industries that are going to be most impacted by that. And what, what do you say to those folks? Because I don't think that dialogue has been robust enough. And I think part of the reason we have the opposition that we have to climate change is that there are a lot of people who feel like they're making the sacrifices that others are not making. Well, I think it's a real issue. I think you point out a real issue. This is not something to be dismissed. If you're in a good union job, uh, you know, building gas-powered cars, and then you go to an electric-powered car with non-union labor and a reduced wage, that is not an attractive proposition to you. So it is a real issue. And the question is, what do we do about that? And, and you know, I'm a good person who believes the labor movement has been brought us the weekend and living middle-class wages. And the best thing we can do about it is to increase the ability of people to have organized labor to represent them. And I believe that we can, we should be much more aggressive in increasing the ability of organized labor to have organized units represent them, including card check, where people can actually get an organized union to represent them. That takes some national legislation to do it. I've backed it for a long period of time. We should make it easier for working people to have a union represent them. And the, that can be very, very successful. So I do think it's an important part of the dialogue. Now, there's some things we can do in our laws and in our trade agreements to also protect workers against untoward uh, competition, which are border adjustment uh, measures, so that if you are having to compete with an international exporter from another country to us, there's a border adjustment if you're not embracing environmental laws for the country of origin or labor laws, so you're competing with people that don't have labor protections. I think that's part of this dynamic as well. So I do think there's things we need to uh, to address that. Uh, we need some more Democrats in Congress to be able to do that, as you know. So getting people to understand that your voting decision is going to allow you to have uh, better wages is fundamental in our electoral cycle as well. So yeah, I think you're right. There's more work to be done on this. The other argument that you hear from people who resist, uh, who resisted the Inflation Reduction Act and who resist other steps is that why are we making these sacrifices when China and India, which, ha which have surpassed us as emitters, are not making the same sacrifices? Doesn't that put us at an economic disadvantage? And why should we do that? And one of the answers that some members of Congress have talked about, Republicans and Democrats, is a climate tariff, essentially, on products from countries that are not observing climate goals and, and doing the things necessary to reach global climate goals. And I was wondering what you thought about that. This border adjustment idea is what I was talking about. Yeah, that's, what I'm, that's why I asked. I, I do think there are, in certain industries, in certain circumstances, that is an appropriate thing to do. It's fair, it's economically productive, and we ought to consider that. Not across the board necessarily, but in targeted industries where we have seen some, in effect, uh, inappropriate subsidization. Look, you're effectively subsidizing an industry. If, you're, if you don't have any climate controls, 
in your industry, you're in effect subsidizing it by allowing it to pollute for free. So I, I do believe in certain circumstances that that is appropriate. But I think there's a larger issue you point to is why we should be doing this. And I believe it's we should be doing it both for economic reasons, in our self-interest, and also for issues of, of morality. Let's start with the economics of this. It is to our advantage to seize these industries of the future. The world is not going to be able to burn fossil fuels for a long period of time because it's inconsistent with our survival. And the winning economies are going to be the ones that can seize dominance in these industries. This is in our, in our personal interest, in our children's interest economically, to build batteries rather than in China. It is in our interest to build electric cars here rather than just German. This is in our economic interest to fashion policies that will help these industries blossom. And the Inflation Reduction Act is a perfect example of a way to do that. And there are many ways we're doing it here in my state with my Climate Commitment Act uh, and other measures with our capital expenditures to help these businesses get going. So this is an economic advantage for us to, to, to basically dominate the industries of the future. On the moral basis, too, it's also a moral and ethically right thing to do. Look, if we want to uh, encourage uh, India or China or Korea or anywhere else to act aggressively, you can't very well tell somebody else to clean up their yard when you haven't cleaned up yours yet. We want to be able to leverage the Chinas of the world to act against climate. But you can't successfully do that if you haven't taken action in your own hometown, in your own yard. Well, and I think that there, there, there's a practical dimension to this too, because if you had border adjustment or border tariff actions, presumably the uh, WTO, the World Trade Organization, would have something to say about that unless the U.S. was taking comparable steps along the way. You got to show that we have shown moral leadership here as well. And we got to understand, we still cannot be, you know, uh, accusing everybody else. I think in the good book, it talks about, you know, look at the boat in your own eye before you're castigating other people. And on a per capita basis, we're still the largest polluter, right? Or on, a, on a per capita basis, we are, are uh, you know, the worst polluters in the world. That's just a reality on a per capita basis. Uh, our, our per capita, per person emissions are still, I don't know, 40% more than, than folks in China. So we can't really be morally uh, sort of uh, uh, recriminating their efforts. That's the situation. Now, it's also helpful when we act to show leadership to other communities. So I was in Korea. Al Gore does a, a training, and he invited me to, to go talk with some Korean governors and parliamentarians in Korea a couple of weeks ago to be able to show with them and share them a success story. So I was able to go uh, talk to my counterparts, governors in Korea, to say, look, here's the things we've done in Washington State with the best cap and invest bill in the country, a great low carbon fuel standard, the best building codes in, this, in the country. And I was able to share with them what we've done that has been successful and has helped us create one of the best economies in the nation at the same time. So by taking actions in America, we've always been the leaders of the world. And this is another place where our leadership 
can help other communities to join us and follow us. I can go talk to governors anywhere in the world now. I'm going to Australia here, uh, uh, and I'll be talking to governors there when I'm there to say, look what we have done, and I will show you how this has succeeded. You can join us, and you will, you will help improve your economy just as we have. So there's a lot of reasons that we should act here, uh, economic, moral, and to show our leadership. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now back to the show. So I asked you if you saw the Republican debate, and a couple of things struck me about that. One was uh, uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, who said, who called it the climate hoax, and said that he uh, felt that this was just throwing a wet blanket on the American economy. And I was thinking about you when uh, when he said that, and I was wondering if you were throwing things against the wall at that point. You seem pretty low key, so maybe not. <laughs> When you have such low expectations of the Republican Party, those low expectations were met. So I've kind of given up on them to some degree. It was very disturbing. You know, uh, when he said that climate change was a hoax, it was glaring to hear that from anyone in today's situation where, you know, the, the news report right before that was fires in Spokane County burning 300 homes. And right after that is, is you know, hurricanes and, and giant floods in Greece. It, it, it is glaring that we still have that kind of discussion coming out of the Republican Party, and it's disturbing. And, and, there's, and I think, but, but let me just say, I, for those people who are climate deniers, and I'd obviously put him in that, anybody who says climate change is a hoax is a climate denier. I think that is a certain circle of, I, I shouldn't use hell, I'll only use it metaphorically because I never want to think in those terms in real terms, but those folks, if there was a hell, would be in a certain circle. But I actually think there is a worse circle of hell for those people who recognize it is happening, know that it's going to threaten humanity's survival, and then say we shouldn't do anything about it. I actually think that is a deeper level of guilt, if you will, and that's where the Republican Party is right now. They 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 kind of they kind of said well yeah it is kind of happening we just don't want to do anything about it I actually think that is almost a worse moral uh, repulsive uh, position and that's where that party is right now which is 
most unfortunate. And I would like to bring them into the tent. I wish we had Teddy Roosevelt Republicans. I wish we even had Richard Nixon Republicans, right, who started the EPA. But that party is barren of that kind of leadership right now. And the only solution to that problem, at least in the immediate future, is to make sure that they are, you know, on the golf course and not in public office. And I make sure that's the case. Let me ask you about one of your fellow governors, Governor DeSantis, who was on that platform and a young person asked a question about climate. And he uh, barked at this kid and essentially took a similar tact uh, and then left the stage and went back to Florida to deal with these storms that were made much more intense by climate change because the waters around Florida are unusually hot now after months and months of, of warm temperatures. What'd you make of that? Well, what I make of it is that this is a party that really, uh, if they were self-aware all, they realize they're kind of dooming them to long-term failure because the younger people, anybody under the age of 30 gets this big time. I was at uh, an elementary school in Southwest Washington yesterday talking to fifth graders. And the fifth graders were explaining to me how concerned they are about climate change and what they're doing to stop it and all their efforts. The young people of America get this big time. And the fact that you had a young Republican asking him that question and him just blowing them off is, is, is not a good sign for the future of that party. It doesn't have a future in some degree when everybody under the age of 30 or 35 understands this as an existential threat, not just to their nation, but to their personal lives. When you talk to young people today, frequently they will say, I am thinking about whether to have bring children into this world, given the threats that we are now experiencing in such profound ways. So the future is to, to defeat climate change, and that party is not providing any leadership on it. And, you know, I, I'm not giving them advice, but as far as the long-term future, they, they're in trouble in that regard. Uh, but we need to make this a voting issue, by the way. And this is why, for some period of time, I've been arguing with my colleagues in the Democratic Party, we need to make this a voting issue, a defining issue, a dividing issue to some degree, so that people know what we're up against. And I'm encouraging all of my colleagues to elevate clean energy and climate change in the things they talk about when they juxtapose their position with, with the Republican opponents, because it is increasingly a voting decision by the electorate, because they now are recognizing it as a personal threat in people's lives. You know, when you think about this, this used to be a graph on a chart. This used to be, you know, we'd show graphs, right? And so what? It's a graph. Now it's your mom's house burned down, or your uncle's house got swamped, or you've got a friend who's got, you know, Lyme disease because ticks are moving north. So it's now much, uh, a much more personal thing. You know, you've been a very successful politician for a long time, so you understand politics very well. It is a potentially a voting issue in the Republican race. And you look at polling and uh, 78% of Democrats describe climate change as a major threat, about more than half of uh, independents. And just 23% of Republicans consider climate a major threat. So there, it's almost become a cultural issue. Almost everything's become a cultural issue over there. Less about the science or the meteorology or anything like that, more about bureaucrats and scientists trying to tell us what to do, trying to dictate how we live our lives. 
And it strikes me that that is, since the pandemic, that sort of intense resistance to regulations, to science, you know, the vaccines and so on, that is something that has festered and grown. And I think it touches on climate as well. You've identified a real problem, and it is such a sad thing that this has become to be seen through a partisan lens, that when people look at their telescope, they see it through a lens of partisanship and the kind of issues that you're describing. And it has, unfortunately, a lot of folks in the Republican Party have blinded themselves to absolute science and absolute reality. And it was the same with COVID. You know, I think it was really, really sad. It was frustrating when we were trying to fight COVID and you had a Republican president taking, you know, horse dewormer medicine and telling them that this was not a problem. And we were trying to get people vaccinated. And, you know, we had a state senator who was a Republican who was espouting the Trump stuff, didn't get vaccinated, died. And a state trooper uh, chew me out because he didn't want to get vaccinated, died. Because they were blinded to the, to the science because people were looking at it through a partisan lens for the, exactly the reasons you're talking about. They were, they were refusing to accept the science because they, they felt it was somehow tainted by being associated with Democrats. And it's a fatal, it's a fatal problem. And so I've seen that firsthand. And it is affecting our efforts to be unified on the climate issue. And then we have to ask ourselves, what's the most effective way to do that? Well, I try to get people to understand, to think about it from the business perspective. These are business people. These are entrepreneurs who are putting people to work, making profits, creating clean energy jobs. This is not some ideological takeover. It is a a clean energy revolution being led by entrepreneurs. And kind of talking about it on those grounds to try to get it out of the political arena and more into the business economic arena where more Republicans might be comfortable. I try to talk about it in those terms. I try to point to the tremendous business leadership we have, many of people who are Republicans, who are leading these companies uh, in, in doing great things. I was in the Southwest Washington yesterday and where we're making chips, chips now of, of making our, the heart of our digital revolution uh, are part of the clean energy revolution. Turns out these guys are making chips down there. They're doubling their production. Those chips go down and 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 run the the software programs that manage our batteries in our electric cars. So it's a clean energy company. And getting people to understand that their bread and butter is associated with the the clean energy revolution, which is associated in our way to defeat climate change is the way I try to get people to open their minds to this without total success, but we continue our efforts. (laughs) One thing I should mention, because someone will say, why didn't you mention this? On COVID, everything you say about the president was true. He would say, hey, I I was the one who green-lighted all of the uh, efforts to get to the vaccine as quickly as we did. And I just want to say that because I'll give him credit for that. I think that was the right thing to do and a good thing to do. And maybe it was the obvious thing to do, but he did it and we benefited from it. So that was one right thing that he did. 
Let me ask you this. We, we didn't talk about the, I said we'd talk about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, I was talking to a reporter earlier today who covers the environment who said single most impactful piece of legislation ever in the history of the country relative to the environment. We should point out it was passed through budget reconciliation, which means it needed no Republican votes, and I don't think got any. Tell me what impact you think it has had and will have. Uh, enormous. $360 billion of investment, or at least, and it may be a lot more than that, actually. That's a number that may have actually minimized. We're finding out the uptake of these investments might be even faster than predicted. And I can tell you that when I go around and talk to the CEOs of all these clean energy economies, the investment that's coming into our country to create jobs is absolutely stunning. And it's, 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 it's implications, the amount it has jump-started investment in these clean energy uh, businesses is just profoundly gratifying about what's going on. So I do believe it is a game changer uh, in this regard. I really credit President Biden for his leadership in getting this job uh, done. I think he pulled a rabbit out of a hat. And so it's a tremendous achievement. Specifically on the climate issue. Yes. Oh, no, no, on the climate issue. You're right. And this is the most inappropriately named bill in American history. It should be Saving Planet Act of 20, you know, 2022. So, yeah, it's amazing. Now, having said that, you need to couple that message with this message. It's not enough. We have to double and triple uh, the rate of our decarbonization even beyond this significant achievement. And this is where states are very, very important, and governors as well, because this is only going to get us maybe 30 or 40 percent or maybe 50 percent down the road to where, how fast we need to decarbonize our economy. So the kind of things that we're doing in my state and other states are carbon cap and invest programs, uh, low-carbon fuel programs, a more aggressive building uh, standards so that we can you know, stop putting gas in our buildings and actually make them net zero buildings like we're doing in the state of Washington. These are all policies that are absolutely necessary to meet our national goals. And that's why states are really, really important. And thank goodness we've got states that are doing that. Uh, California, Oregon, Michigan are all doing things. Minnesota are doing great things to advance things faster than our national governments. It's one of the messages I'm going around the world right now talking to fellow governors uh, about the fact that states and provinces around the world all face uh, the same problem, which is that national governors, national governments cannot go as fast as they need to, in part because national governments are usually tied to some of the more conservative areas of their nation, right? Our national government is tied to Texas and Alabama and Florida. It can't go as fast as it needs to go. And states and provinces around the world need to go faster. Frankly, we are. We have 23 states in the U.S. Climate Alliance, so I started with Jerry Brown, that now are going faster than the national government, even with the Inflation Reduction Act. Thank goodness. And, and it's interesting, for those Republicans who don't understand this, those 23 states have economic performance faster than the states that aren't in the U.S. Climate Alliance. This is a growth opportunity for us. So we need to emphasize the need for more acceleration that can and is happening in our states. You talk to people and they say, oh, we've done an excellent job in 
jumpstarting the transition to electric vehicles. We've done other kinds of regulation that have been really effective and that the next big frontier is what to do about steel plants, heavy industrial plants. That strikes me as it may be important. It's also seems like a very fraught discussion because of the things we talked about earlier. First of all, you, do you think that's how you get some of the rest of that 50%? And how do you have that discussion with labor, with the uh, management of these major... I'm always looking for the good news. So I'll look at it from the good news end of the telescope. The good news is we have an enormous yardage to gain on what you might think the lower hanging fruit, which is electrifying our transportation system, electrifying our homes. So we're powering them with electricity instead of gas and, and oil. And so we have enormous savings that will be had by doing those things that we can use existing technology. We have the technology to do, you know, 70 to 80% of this today. We just need to make the investments in the capital investments to actually put in the equipment to do that. There also is, Governor, the politics of it. You saw the resistance to the idea that stoves should be electric and legislation move to try and stop the regulation of stoves and so on. And it goes back to this issue we spoke about before, which is this is it's become almost a cultural issue, which is we don't want the government, we don't want scientists telling us what to do. So it's not just a matter of resources, it's a matter of will and understanding and mutual commitment. As usual, uh, the Axe Files is always exactly correct. <laughs> you put your finger right on it. What the point I want to make is exactly what you're pointing. We have the technologies to do this that are cost-effective today. They don't break the bank doing it today. It is only a matter of will. In a sense, that's good news. We just need people to join us in, in effectuating the willpower to actually get this done. So what my point is, is that you're right. There's some of the more difficult areas to decarbonize. Jet travel, for instance, right? It's hard to plug in an airplane to, a, to a, an extension cord. Uh, steel, uh, the heating it takes to make concrete. Those are some of the more challenging things to do. And we are going to need some new technologies to, to overcome those things. But if you believe, as I do, the almost infinite power of our innovative uh, capability, those things are coming on very quickly. Uh, at the University of Washington, I just saw a new type of concrete to use a new, a new material that you can make concrete without this extreme heat and energy to actually do that. It's just it's just going through its final tests on its uh, on its tensile strength. It's very very encouraging. I told you about this company called Twelve that's making jet fuel out of out of carbon dioxide and water. So I am confident we will be able to surmount those things. But the good news is, as long as we have the will to do this, we can bring these things on new today. Now, you point out the stove issue. You hit a hot button with me, so to speak. So to speak, yes. Bad pun. I see what you did there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have those kind of things where Republicans will point to something in our lives that seems to be jarring. We're going to have those political debates. But I will tell you, people are going to love it when they, when they, when they go to our, our, our new stovetops. Microsoft made this transition two years ago. They have some of the best food in America for their corporation, like 40,000 people. 
And all the chefs said, don't take away my gas range. I just love it. And it's so great. It's fast. It's maneuverable. And the, and the Microsoft people said, look, let's try this. So they made the transition. And when you talk to the chefs out there at Microsoft, there's no way they're going to go back to gas because they found out these inductive ranges are so much more controllable. You set it on a certain number and you get precisely number of the heat. And you can boil water like in 10 seconds, your pot is boiling. It's, it's incredible. And so people will love this. We just got to figure out a way to get it through. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now, back to the show. So the subtext of a lot of what we've talked about, and this is my transition to politics, and I do want to talk to the Axe Files usually isn't all about one issue as we've talked about for now for some 40 minutes, but it's such an important one. I just wanted to, I, like I said, I wanted to get a burst of your evangelical fervor, <laughs> but a lot of the subtext is about our politics. And, you know, even in your own assessment here, and I heard you refer to Trump, uh, although not by name, as a knucklehead on this issue. We are in a different place than we were in our politics when you got into politics. Uh, we're more polarized. We're more divided. Compromise is harder to reach, although Congress has reached some in the last few years on, on infrastructure, on chips, and so on. But any compromise is viewed with suspicion. Actually, not just by one party, but sometimes by both parties, that compromise is considered sort of tantamount to surrender. And we are we, we, we sit within our silos and we shake our fists at the people outside of it and view them as dangerous and uh, subversive. And that's, of course, social media companies reap a lot of benefits from keeping people in those silos. And politicians do. They raise money that way pandering to outrage, pandering to alienation. You ran for president trying to be the sensible guy talking about an urgent issue, this issue of climate change. I complimented you then when I was sort of covering that campaign for CNN. I thought you were kind of like a solid oak tree in the middle of the, the, the whole discussion there. People chose a different tree. But what do we do about a politics that makes it so hard to reach consensus and that discourages consensus? Well, first off, if you'll allow a personal aside, I wish my mother was alive today for you to say I was an oak tree. And I'll tell you why. That was the highlight of my political campaign. It was no secret I ran for president. It just seemed like one at the time, as they say. <laughs> but my mom used to tell my brother and I, you need to grow up like an oak tree, son. And I just remember that. So you made me think of my mom. So thank you, David. All right. No, I, I didn't even know that. It was no, no, kinetic. I, I, haven't, I haven't thought of that for, for years now, but, but thank you. 
Well, listen, really hard question to answer. I'm going to define the, the, the problems, if I may, just for a moment, then talk about solutions. And if you would, talk about them drawing on your own experience yeah. of being a candidate. Well, there are multiple structural underlying problems that have led to this, this polarization in our society. Uh, number one is social media, which has created a profit the, the design of industries now are to profit on anger. We have whole industries that have and, and uh, systems that have learned to make money on anger. And the more angry people are, the more money you make, including some of the industries you've worked out in, not the ones you work for necessarily. So when you have algorithms, that are designed to make you angry because that'll make your stockholders more money. That's a problem. And that's the situation that, we're, that we are in because of the power of social media to become profit centers. That's number one. Number two, uh, our, our gerrymandering, you know how profoundly difficult that is now because, because people don't choose their member of Congress except maybe in 30 or 35 districts out of 435 now. They're chosen by the Congress people who gerrymandered the hell out of these things, and people don't get a choice. And that drives polarization of the members. Well, of they do get a choice, but they get a choice generally because these districts are drawn to favor one party or the other in a primary. They get a choice between two Republicans or they get a choice between two Democrats. And when that happens, the, the farthest right or the farthest left tends to be dominant in these primaries. So the gerrymandering of the U.S. House of Representatives has profoundly uh, uh, pushed people to, to, be, to be polarized. Third, there's another dynamic which I don't fully understand, which is that people have segregated themselves geographically. So right now there are half as many zip codes in the United States that are 50-50 zip codes than there were 25 years ago. There is a geographic sorting that's going on geographically amongst our, our population. So you have these three large dynamics that are leading to more uh, polarization in our community, which makes it hard for guys like me who would try to help forge consensus. So what do we do about that? Well, you, you try to be as good a listener as you can to all spectrums. You go to neighborhoods. Let, let me let, let, let me interrupt you for just one second because one of the reasons I mean it, it, it may be your temperament and orientation as well, but one of the reasons you learned that was because you ran in competitive districts where if you want to be successful, you had to have that gene. Well, I did. I represented a very very red uh, two state legislative districts. I represent one of the reddest congressional districts, at least for two years, in the Western United States. And so it is possible to uh, to do well when you're swimming in some different waters. Um, but it's interesting, my old legislative and, and congressional districts now uh, have been part of that geographic sorting that I talked about. So right now in my old congressional district, which was in eastern Washington, it was a rural district, heavily agricultural district, there's been a geographic sorting where people now have become much more of the, of the, the red persuasion because of who's living there, right? And it, it's just been a reality. Whereas in my new congressional district, after I got beat in 1984, I moved over to western Washington, that has become a much bluer district because of this geographic sorting that I've talked to you about. 
So there is that that upwinds, and and that has more than sort of implications for candidates who are running. It has implications for us as a society. It has implications for certainly for us, for the politics of our society, because you put all of this together and we sort of view each other not as fellow Americans, but as sort of adversaries in the political wars. I mean, talk about this because you have straddled this line. Talk about this rural-urban divide. Well, it exists, unfortunately, and it's a way to break it down is to show our, our the things we have in common, which again is this clean energy economy. Look, bringing clean energy jobs to rural Washington state and, uh, and the deep south and the Midwest, that's happening big time. So right now, I mentioned this company that does jet fuel out of carbon dioxide. It's in Grant County, Washington. Uh, heretofore, it's been a rural agricultural economy, been heavily uh, red sort of political district. But now when I go in and talk to these these folks about the jobs that are doing this and in, and in uh, new battery technology, two of the world's leading battery companies in the whole world are in a red rural district in my state. And I can go in there and you can win votes in that district now talking about the job creation associated with this. So I actually believe the clean energy economy message is going to help Democrats in some of these more rural areas and is, frankly, where we are becoming more competitive. So it's all kind of connected. You want some good news. We're going to (laughs) defeat climate change. We're going to build a clean energy economy. And we're going to elect more Democrats in some of these smaller, smaller towns when people become more unified and recognizing the job prospects that are, that are apparent. And if you're a Republican saying, no, no, there's no clean energy jobs. And I go, Harry just got a job. My kid just got a job making silicon anode batteries in Moses Lake, Washington. What are you talking about? You're from a, a different century, Mr. Republican. They're going to be in some trouble, and rightfully so. Now, by the way, now this is going to sound a little partisan, if I may. I've talked about these ideas of long term, how we got to listen to, to communities, build clean energy jobs get rid of gerrymandering. But in the short term, there's really only one answer here. And that's not allow these Republicans who deny climate change anywhere close to power in our country. And that's the short term answer. Anybody listening to this who cares about that, we got to get out there and vote and elect people who are not ignoring climate change. That's the short term. Yeah. I'm not sure. Obviously, I come out of the Democratic Party. I work for a Democratic president. I think right now the state of play is what you des- is as you describe it. Although, obviously, there were Republicans in Congress who worked with the president on the infrastructure bill, which you've also benefited from, are benefiting from, Big time. and some other things. But I- I'm just worried about every action creates a reaction, and we're in sort of this death spiral. I want to say death spiral to an optimist, so I'm, I withdraw <laughs> that. But but we're in this cycle in which anger begets anger, destruction of norms begets destruction of norms, and we we are just hardening in our attitudes about each other. I think I saw a statistic that, you know, some really significant portion of Americans said they'd be concerned if their child married someone whose family was of another party. I mean, this is, it strikes me as a it's not the uh, climate crisis. 
It doesn't have physical manifestations. The climate crisis creates all kinds of social disruption as well. But it is a democracy crisis. It's a societal crisis. I'm just trying to figure out how we break through that. But I mean, it's not a question that has an easy answer, as you point out. The short term is to preserve democracy itself. That means keeping Donald Trump out of the White House, which is a, which is a great threat to democracy itself. And keeping the ability to have elections where we count the votes and then we honor that, that's fundamental. And I got to tell you, uh, uh, I, I have seen such a stunning lack of leadership in the Republican Party who, who threw Nixon out for, you know, essentially a misdemeanor, con- considering what Trump has done. To have no Republican standing up against Donald Trump effectively, it is an outrage. And that party should be ashamed of itself not producing some leadership to stand up against this attack against democracy. I want listen to some right wing radio the other day, sort of you know uh, saying that January sixth was just a nice little debate. You don't have leadership in that party right now, David, and it, it, and we ought to be judgmental about them and not uh, of not standing up against this threat of this guy. So I, I want to express that that concern to pursue democracy. See, now I want to leave you on a note of optimism, though, because I want you to be hard. Wait, wait, before the big wind up here, where we turn back to optimism, you're right. Now, there have been people who have stood up, and a lot of them are not in office anymore. And as you know, the incentive to, there's a, I always say there's a reason why profiles encourage with such a slim volume. (laughs) If you have, if you have a choice between doing what you know is right, that may cost you your job, and going along, a lot of your former colleagues, current colleagues, they may feel bad about it inside, but they will uh, take the easier route. And you see that in the Republican Party. You have some candidates, uh, including a a former gubernatorial colleague of yours, Asa Hutchinson, who is calling Trump out, Governor Christie calling Trump out, former Congressman Will Hurd calling Trump out. They're at the bottom of the heap. So they're responding to the market. I'm not excusing others who, I mean, the people who are doing that are responding to the market. I admire these guys for speaking out, but it's not, it hasn't proven to be a a prescription for success. And what's really needed is probably for defeat to come and a big reckoning. Well, I believe, I believe that that is likely to happen, but let me just comment. We should not excuse them for their moral turpitude of not standing up against this guy. We should not excuse them. I, I just don't believe when democracy itself is in question, the fact that you're yeah. worried about your seat is not, that is inexcusable given the nature of what we threat, which is the loss of what we've been fighting for for 250 years. That's my yeah. personal belief. No, listen, I, I, I so admire those who have the Kinzingers and the Liz Cheney's and the Fred Uptons and, you know, a number of others. I, you know, Mitt Romney, you know, and so, and the seven who voted, I guess, seven in the Senate for uh, conviction on impeachment. I, you know, I, I agree with you on both. And so, OK, we're almost at the end here. And I'm counting on you to land this plane in the optimistic lane. We're going to land it in that in the optimism lane. Yeah. Uh, well, I shouldn't have used that analogy because then we're adding to the carbon footprint. It'll be, anyway. a, it'll be a plane fueled on renewable fuels okay. and safety right. with, with no carbon emissions <laughs> being, being invented and produced in Washington State. <laughs> okay. Let me just, okay, here's my closing pitch to you on why I want you to be optimistic. Number one, it's okay. good for you. You will feel better. It's good for you. Okay. I care about you. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, it is based on reality. 
It is based on facts. It is based on a recognition of the power of humans to invent new technologies faster than we can possibly imagine. It's based on a belief in America as being the center of innovation in world history. It's based on reality. There's so much good news. Not only is it going to make you feel better, it's based on good news. And this issue of the social tension that we're going through now, the, 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 the polarization of the party, what I would say to you about this is your worries are, are, are accurate. I feel them every day. But what I would say is there's one value of age. There's only one value of age, and that is having seen things come and go. And we go through this again. Well, what about cheaper movie tickets? Cheaper movie tickets. There you go. Okay, Medicare, right. So there's a couple of advantages. <laughs> but, you know, I remember the polarization when I was 19 years of age, having knocked down, drag out fights with my dad about the Vietnam War and mm -hmm. the tensions that we had during that society and the civil rights movement and the riots that we have that, that burned down Washington, D.C. I, I guess what I'm saying is, we go through periods like we're experiencing right now, and there is hope that we will come out of them. And so I, I remain confident that we're going to be on the upswing in, in the nation. I just believe that because we've, we've seen it before. We're, we're lucky as a nation, and I just believe in the Axe Files to help bail us out ultimately. So, <laughs> Well, if, if we can push back against these sort of pernicious forces that have profiteered off of anger, as you point out, and outrage, I think we'll take a big step forward because, Gov, I want my kids to inherit a strong economy. I want them to live in a planet that is safe from climate change, where climate change is stabilized, and I want them to enjoy a thriving democracy. So I am renewed now. I, I had an hour of therapy, uh, and I appreciate it. You can send your bill to the Axe Files, and it's always great to see you. Thanks for speaking for democracy, David. Your leadership has been so important. Uh, Thank you. I still remember when we were in a caucus doing healthcare reform, and you came to help boast the courage of of some of my colleagues you do. I just remember you standing up there at a moment of tension and you've been such a leader for our country and I'm glad you're still doing it. Thank you so much, Governor. Be well. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.